Chapter One, Part One of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Roscoe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One, Part One. At nine o'clock, the Variety Theatre was still almost empty. In the balcony and orchestra stalls, a few persons waited, lost amidst the garnet-colored velvet seats in the faint light of the half-extinguished gasolier. The huge crimson curtain was enveloped in shadow, and not a sound came from the stage behind. The footlights were not yet lit up, and the seats of the musicians were unoccupied. High up, however, in the third gallery close to the roof, displaying figures of naked women and children floating among the clouds, to which the gas imparted a greenish tinge, were heard the sounds of shouts and laughter above a continual hum of conversation, and a crowd of men and women, all wearing the caps of the working classes, were seated in rows reaching almost to the gilded festoons of the ceiling. Now and again an attendant would appear, fussily conducting a lady and gentleman to their seats, the gentleman in evening dress, and the lady slim and slightly stooping and glancing slowly over the house. Two young men suddenly appeared in the stalls close to the orchestra, they remained standing, looking round about them. "'What did I tell you, Hector? exclaimed the elder, a tall fellow with a slight black moustache. "'We have come too early. You might just as well have allowed me to finish my cigar.' An attendant passed by at this moment. "'Oh, Monsieur Faucherie, she said familiarly, "'it will not begin for half an hour.' "'Then why on earth did they say nine o'clock on the bills?' asked Hector, whose long, thin face assumed an expression of intense annoyance. This very morning, Clarisse, who is in the piece, assured me that the curtain would go up at nine precisely. For a minute they relapsed into silence, as they raised their heads and gazed into the shadows of the boxes. But the green paper with which the latter were lined made them obscurer still. Below the small boxes under the balcony disappeared in total darkness. In the balcony boxes only a very stout lady, leaning heavily on the velvet-colored balustrade, was to be seen. To the right and the left, between high columns, the stage boxes, hung with drapery deeply fringed, remained empty. The body of the house, decorated in white and gold, relieved by pale green, seemed to disappear, filled as it was with a misty haze arising from the subdued light emanating from the huge crystal gasolier. "'Did you succeed in securing a stage box for Lucy?' asked Hector. "'Yes,' replied the other, "'but not without a deal of trouble.' Oh, there is no danger of Lucy's coming too early. Not she. He stifled a yawn, and then, after a brief silence, resumed. You are lucky you have never yet been present at a first night. The blonde Venus will be the success of the year. Everyone has been speaking of the piece for six months past. Ah, oh, my boy, such music, such go. Bordenave, who knows what's what, kept it purposely for the time of the exhibition. Hector listened religiously. At length he hazarded a question. And Nana, the new star who is to play Venus, do you know her? Oh, hang it, are you going to begin that too? exclaimed Faucherie, gesticulating wildly. Ever since this morning I have heard of nothing but Nana. I have met more than twenty fellows I know, and it has been Nana here and Nana there. Do you suppose I know every petticoat in Paris? Nana is one of Bordenave's inventions. She must be something choice. After this explosion he calmed down a little. But the emptiness of the house, the dim light that pervaded the whole, the opening and shutting of doors and the hushed voices suggestive of a church irritated him. Confound it, he said suddenly. I can't stand this, you know. I must go out. 
Perhaps we shall meet Bordenave below. He will give us some details. In the marble-paved vestibule where the box office was situated, they found the public beginning to arrive. Through the three open doors, all the busy throng on the boulevards could be seen enjoying the beautiful April evening. Carriages dashed up to the theatre, and the doors were slammed noisily. People entered by twos and threes, and, after stopping at the box office, ascended the double staircase in the rear, the women walking slowly with a swinging gait. In the glare of the gas were pasted on the naked walls of this hall, whose meagre decorations in the style of the empire suggested the peristyle of a cardboard temple, some enormous yellow posters, in which Nana's name appeared in huge black letters. Men were loitering in front of these bills as they read them, while others were standing about talking among themselves and blocking up the doorways, whilst near the box office a thick-set man with a big clean-shaved face was roughly replying to some people who were in vain endeavouring to obtain seats. "'There's Bordenave,' said Faucherie, as he and Hector descended the stairs. But the manager had caught sight of him. "'You are a nice fellow,' he called out. "'That is the way you write me a notice, is it?' I opened the Figaro this morning. Not a word. Wait a bit, replied Faucherie. I must see your nana before I can write about her. Besides, I made no promise. Then, to prevent further discussion, he presented his cousin, Hector de la Faloise, a young man who had come to complete his education in Paris. The manager weighed the young man at a glance, but Hector surveyed the manager with some little emotion. This, then, was Bordenave the exhibitor of women, whom he treated in the style of a prison warder, and whose brain was ever hatching some fresh money-making scheme. A perfect cynic, always shouting or spitting or smacking his thighs and possessing the coarse mind of a trooper. Hector was anxious to make a good impression on him. Your theatre, he began in clear musical tones. Bordenave interrupted him quietly and said, with the coolness of a man who prefers to call things by their right names, Say my brothel, rather. Faucherie laughed approvingly, but La Valoise was shocked to a degree and his meditated compliment stuck in his throat as he endeavored to look as though he appreciated the joke. The manager had rushed off to shake hands with a dramatic critic whose criticisms had great influence, and when he returned, La Valoise had almost recovered himself. He feared lest he should be regarded as a provincial if he appeared too much disconcerted. I have been told he began wishing at any rate to say something, that Nana has a delicious voice. She, cried the manager, shrugging his shoulders, she has no more voice than a squirt. The young man hastened to add, besides, she is an excellent actress. She, a regular lump, she never knows where to put her hands or her feet. La Valoise colored slightly. He was at a loss what to understand. He managed to stammer out, on no account would I have missed this first night. I know that you're a theatre. Say my brothel, interrupted Bordenave again, with the cool obstinacy of a man thoroughly convinced. Meanwhile, Faucherie had been calmly examining the women as they entered. He now came to his cousin's assistance when he saw him doubtful whether to laugh or be angry. Gratify Bordenave, call his theatre just what he desires, as it amuses him. And as for you, my dear fellow, you need not try to fool us. If your nana can't sing and can't play, you will make a regular fiasco of it tonight. And that is just what I am expecting. A fiasco, a fiasco, exclaimed the manager, whose face became purple with rage. Is it necessary for a woman to know how to sing and act? 
Ah, my boy, you are much too stupid. Nana has something else, damn her, and something that will make up for anything she may lack. I scented it, and she has plenty of it, for I have only the nose of a fool. You will see, you will see. She has only to appear, and all the spectators will at once smack their lips. He raised his big hands, which trembled with enthusiasm, and then, lowering his voice, murmured to himself, Yes, she will go far. Ah, damn her. Yes, she will go far. A skin. Oh, such a skin. Then, in answer to Faucherie's questions, he condescended to give certain details, making use of such offensive language that he quite shocked Hector. He had become acquainted with Nana and wished to bring her out and it so happened that he was in want of a Venus. He never allowed a woman to hang on to him very long. He preferred to let the public have its share of her at once. But he had had a damnable time in his shop. The arrival of this great hulking girl had revolutionized everything. Rose Mignon, his star, a fine actress and an adorable singer, threatened daily to leave him in the lurch. Divining arrival in Nana, she was furious. And the playbills... Deuce take it, what a row they had caused. However, he had decided to print the names of the two actresses in letters of equal size. They had better not badger him too much. When one of his little women, as he called them, Clarisse or Simone, did not do as she was told, he just kicked her behind. If he treated them differently, they would never leave him any peace. He dealt in them, and he knew what they were worth, the hussies. Ah, he exclaimed, interrupting himself. There come Mignon and Steiner. They are always together. You know that Steiner begins to have had enough of Rose, so the husband sticks to him like a plaster lest he should escape. The flaring gas jets running along the cornice of the theatre threw a sheet of vivid light over the footpath. Two small trees stood out clearly with their fresh green foliage, and a pillar was so brilliantly illuminated by the blaze of light that the bills posted upon it could be read at a distance as clearly as at midday whilst afar off the dense darkness of the boulevards was studded with multitudinous lights revealing the surging of an ever-moving crowd. Many of the men did not enter the theatre at once, but loitered outside to finish their cigars and chat under the gaslight, which gave a livid pallor to their faces, and threw their shadows short and black upon the asphalt beneath. Mignon, a tall stout fellow with the square head of the Hercules of a travelling show, shouldered his way through the crowd dragging on his arm the banker Steiner, a short man with a big stomach and a round face fringed with a greyish beard. "'Well,' said Bordenave to the banker, "'you saw her yesterday in my office.' "'Oh, that was her, was it?' exclaimed Steiner. "'I thought as much. "'Only I was going out as she entered. "'I scarcely saw her.' Mignon listened with downcast eyes, all the time nervously twisting a large diamond ring on his little finger. He knew at once that they were talking of Nana. Then, as Bordenave proceeded to give a description of his new star, which caused the banker's eyes to sparkle, he decided to interfere. "'That'll do, my dear fellow. She's not worth looking at. The public will soon send her to the right about. Steiner, my boy, you know that my wife is expecting you in her dressing-room.' He tried to lead him away, but Steiner refused to leave Bordenave. The crowd at the box-office became more compact. The buzz of voices grew louder, and the name of Nana was repeated over and over again with a sing-song enunciation of its two syllables. The men standing in front of the posters read it aloud, 
Others, as they passed, uttered it interrogatively, while the women, smiling and uneasy, repeated it softly with an air of surprise. No one knew Nana. Where on earth had Nana come from? And little jokes were passed about from ear to ear, and little tales told. The very name sounded like a caress and fell familiarly from the lips of everyone. Its constant repetition amused the crowd and kept it in good humor. A fever of curiosity took possession of everybody, that Parisian curiosity which is sometimes as violent as an attack of brain fever. All were eager to see Nana. One lady had the train of her dress torn, and a gentleman lost his hat. "'Ah, you ask me too much,' cried Bordenave, whom twenty men were besieging with questions. "'You will see her presently.' I must be off. They are waiting for me. He disappeared, radiant at having inflamed his public. Mignon shrugged his shoulders and reminded Steiner that Rose was expecting him to show him her costume for the first act. Hello! There's Lucy over there, getting out of her carriage, said La Valoise to Faucherie. It was, in fact, Lucy Stewart, a little ugly woman of about forty, with a neck too long, a thin drawn face and thick lips, but so lively, so graceful that she charmed everyone. She was accompanied by Caroline Equet and her mother. Caroline, with her frigid beauty, the mother very stately and looking as if she were stuffed. You are coming with us, of course, she said to Faucherie. I have kept a place for you. So that I shall see nothing, not if I know it, he answered. I have an orchestra stall. I prefer to be there. Lucy fired up at once. Was he afraid to be seen with her? Then, suddenly calming down, she jumped to another subject. Why did you never tell me that you knew Nana? Nana? I never saw her. Is that really true? I have been assured that you once slept with her. But Mignon, who was in front, put his finger to his lips to signal them to be silent. And when Lucy asked why, he pointed to a young man who had just passed, murmuring, Nana's sweetheart. They all stared after him. He was certainly very good-looking. Faucherie recognized him. His name was Dagonet, and he had squandered a fortune of three hundred thousand francs on women, and now dabbled in stocks in order to make a little money with which he could treat them to an occasional bouquet and dinner. Lucy thought he had very handsome eyes. "'Ah, there's Blanche,' she exclaimed. "'It was she who told me that you had slept with Nana.' Blanche de Sivry, a heavy blonde whose pretty face was getting too fat, arrived accompanied by a slender, well-dressed man with a most distinguished air. "'Count Xavier de Vendeuvre, whispered Faucherie to La Valoise. The Count shook hands with the journalist whilst a lively discussion took place between Lucy and Blanche. They quite blocked up the entry with their skirts covered with flounces, one in pink and the other in blue, and Nana's name fell from their lips so frequently that the crowd lingered to listen. The Count at length led Blanche away, but Nana's name did not cease to resound from the four corners of the vestibule in louder and more eager tones. Would they never begin? The men pulled out their watches, latecomers leaped from their carriages before they really drew up, and the groups left the pavement whilst the passers-by, as they slowly crossed the stream of light, stretched their necks to see what was going on in the theatre. A street urchin who came up whistling stood for a moment before one of the posters at the door, then in a drunken voice shouted out, Oh, my Nana! and reeled on his way dragging his old shoes along the asphalt. People laughed and several well-dressed gentlemen repeated, Nana! Oh, my Nana! The crush was tremendous.
a quarrel broke out at the box office the cries for nana increased one of those stupid fits of brutal excitement common to crowds had taken possession of this mass of people suddenly above this uproar the sound of a bell was heard the rumor extended to the boulevards that the curtain was about to rise and there was more pushing and struggling everyone wished to get in the employees of the theatre were at their wits end mignon looking uneasy seized hold of steiner who had not been to inspect the dress rose was to wear at the first tinkle of the bell la faloise pushed through the crowd dragging faucherie with him fearing lest he should miss the overture lucy stuart was irritated by all these demonstrations of eagerness what vulgar persons to push ladies about she remained to the last with caroline Quay and her mother at length the vestibule was empty outside the boulevards maintained their prolonged rumble as if their pieces were always funny lucy kept repeating as she ascended the stairs faucherie and la faloise stood in their places examining the house which was now very brilliant the crystal gasolier blazed with prismatic hues and the light was reflected from the ceiling on to the pit like a shower of gold the garnet-coloured velvet of the seats appeared as though shot with lake whilst the glitter of the gilding was softened by the decorations of pale green beneath the coarse paintings of the ceiling the footlights blazed upon the crimson curtain the richness of which suggested the most fabulous of palaces and offered a melancholy contrast to the poverty of the frame the crevices in which showed the plaster beneath the gilding it was already excessively warm in the orchestra the musicians were tuning their instruments and the light trills of the flute the stifled sighs of the horn the singing notes of the violin were drowned by the increasing hum of voices all the spectators were talking together pushing and squeezing each other in their endeavours to reach their seats and the crush in the corridors was so great that it was with difficulty the doors gave ingress to the never-ceasing flow of people friends nodded to each other from a distance and with the rustling of clothes came a procession of gay costumes and headdresses broken now and again by a black dress suit or a dark overcoat however the seats were gradually filling here and there appeared a bright-coloured robe and a head with a delicate profile displayed a chignon on which sparkled some valuable jewel in one of the boxes a glimpse was caught of a woman's naked shoulder seemingly as white as ivory other women calmly waiting fanned themselves languidly as they watched the surging crowd while a group of young dandies standing in the orchestra stalls all shirt-front and wearing gardenias in their buttonholes gazed through their opera-glasses which they held with the tips of their daintily gloved fingers then the two cousins looked round in search of acquaintances mignon and steiner sat side by side in a box with their arms resting on the velvet balustrade blanche de sivry appeared to be alone in one of the stage-boxes but la faloise watched more especially dagonet who had an orchestra stall two rows in front of his next to him was seated a youngster some seventeen years old just fresh from college who opened his cherub-like eyes wide with delight faucherie smiled as he caught sight of him who is that lady in the balcony asked la faloise suddenly i mean the one who has a young girl in blue next her he directed his companion's glance to a woman whose stout figure was tightly laced and whose once blonde hair now grey was dyed yellow whilst her round puffed face coloured with rouge almost disappeared beneath a shower of little baby curls that's gaga replied faucherie simply and as the name seemed to convey no information to his cousin he added haven't you heard of gaga she was one of the beauties of the first years of louis philippe's reign now she is never seen anywhere without her daughter 
La Valoise had no eyes for the young girl. Gaga, however, affected him strangely. He could not cease looking at her. He thought her still very handsome, though he dared not say so. At length, the conductor of the orchestra gave the signal, and the musicians struck the first note of the overture. People were still coming in, and the noise and bustle increased. On special occasions like this, there were different parts of the house where friends met with a smile, whilst the regular frequenters, thoroughly at their ease, exchanged bows right and left. All Paris was there, the Paris of letters, of finance, and of pleasure, many journalists, some few authors, and several speculators, more kept girls than respectable women, a company, in short, that was a most singular mixture, composed of every kind of genius, tainted with every description of vice, where the same weariness and the same fever seemed inscribed on every face. Faucherie, questioned by his cousin, pointed out to him the boxes of the various newspapers and clubs, and then the dramatic critics, one skinny and dried up, with thin and wicked-looking lips, but more especially a stout, good-natured-looking man, who leaned on the shoulder of his companion, an artless young person over whom he watched with a kind, paternal eye. But he suddenly cut his description short on seeing La Faloise bow to some people who occupied one of the centre boxes. He seemed surprised. What? You know Count Mufa de Beuville? he asked. Oh, yes, I have known him for a long time, replied Hector. The Mufas had an estate near ours. I very often call on them. The Count is with his wife and her father, the Marquis de Chouard. Delighted at his cousin's astonishment and spurred on by vanity, La Faloise went into further details. The Marquis was a state councillor, and the Count had just been appointed chamberlain to the Empress. Faucherie raised his opera glass and examined the Countess, a dark, plump woman with a lovely white skin and beautiful black eyes. "'You must present me between the acts,' he said at last. "'I have already met the Count, but I should like to go to their Tuesdays at home.' An energetic hush was heard from the upper gallery. The overture had commenced, but people were still coming in. Whole rows of persons were compelled to rise to allow latecomers to get to their seats. The doors of the boxes banged, and loud voices were heard quarreling in the corridors. Still the buzz of conversation, similar to the noisy chattering of sparrows at sunset, never ceased. Everything was in the greatest confusion. It was a medley of moving heads and arms, the owners of which were either sitting down and seeking the most comfortable positions, or persisting in standing up to take a last look around. The cry, Sit down, sit down, came from obscure corners of the pit. Everyone trembled with eagerness, for at last the famous Nana, of whom people had been talking for a week, was about to be seen. By degrees, however, the noise subsided with an occasional swell from time to time and in the midst of this faint murmur of these expiring whispers the orchestra burst forth in the gay little notes of a waltz the saucy rhythm of which suggested the laugh raised by some over-free piece of buffoonery the audience fairly tickled already began to smile but the claque seated in the front row of the pit commenced to applaud vociferously the curtain rose hallo said la valoise whose tongue still wagged there is a gentleman with lucy and he looked at the stage box to the right of the first tier, in the front of which sat Lucy and Caroline, while in the rear the dignified face of Caroline's mother was to be discerned, and also the profile of a tall, light-haired young man, most irreproachably dressed. Look, repeated La Faloise with persistence, there's a gentleman. 
Faucherie slowly brought his opera glass to bear on the box indicated, but he turned away immediately. Oh, it's only La Bordette, he murmured in a careless tone of voice, as if the presence of that gentleman was the most natural as well as the most unimportant thing in the world. Behind them someone cried, Hush! and they were driven to silence. Everybody was now perfectly still, and a regular sea of heads, upright and attentive, filled the house from the stalls to the amphitheatre. The first act of the blonde Venus was laid in Olympus, a cardboard Olympus with clouds at the sides and Jupiter's throne on the right. Iris and Ganymede first appeared, surrounded by a crowd of celestial assistants who sang a chorus as they arranged the seats for the gods in council. Again the applause of the paid claque was heard, but the audience as yet was not inclined to respond. La Valoise, however, had applauded Clarisse Besnes, one of Bordenave's little women who played the part of Iris in pale blue, with a broad scarf of the seven colors fastened round her waist. "'You know she takes off her chemise to get into that costume,' he said to Faucherie in a loud whisper. "'We tried it on this morning, and the chemise showed under the arms and on the back.' But a slight tremor took possession of the audience on the appearance of Rose Mignon as Diana. Although she had neither the face nor the figure for the part as she was thin and dark with the adorable ugliness of a Parisian urchin, she seemed charming, intended as she might have been as a mockery of the character she personated. Her entrance song, consisting of words stupid enough to send you to sleep, and in which she complained of Mars, who was neglecting her for Venus, was sung in a bashful manner, but so full of smutty innuendos that the audience warmed up. Her husband and Steiner laughed aloud as they sat side by side. And the whole house burst into applause when Pouliere, that especial favorite, appeared as Mars in the uniform of a general, adorned with a monstrous plume and dragging a sword that reached to his shoulder. He had had enough of Diana. She expected too much. So she swore to watch him and be revenged. Their duo wound up with a ludicrous Tyrolienne, which Brulière sang in his funniest style and in the voice of an angry tabby. He possessed the amusing conceit of a young actor in high favor, and swaggered about as he rolled his eyes in a way that elicited the shrill laughter of the women in the boxes. After that, however, the audience became as cool as before. The scenes which followed were dull in the extreme. Old Busk, as an imbecile Jupiter, his head crushed under an enormous crown, succeeded only in raising a smile, as he quarreled with Juno on account of their cook's wages. The procession of the gods, Neptune, Pluto, Minerva, and all the others almost spoilt everything. The spectators were becoming very impatient. An ominous murmur slowly arose. Everyone began to lose all interest in the piece and looked about the house rather than upon the stage. Lucy laughed with La Bordette. The Count de Vendeuvre emerged a little from behind Blanche's broad shoulders, while Faucherie watched the Mufas from out of the corner of his eyes. The Count looked very grave, as if he had not understood anything, and the Countess, smiling vaguely, seemed wrapped in reverie. But suddenly the applause of the claque burst forth with the regularity of a discharge of musketry, and every eye became riveted on the stage once more. Was it Nana at last? that Nana who had kept them waiting so long. It was a deputation of mortals introduced by Ganymede and Iris, respectable citizens, all deceived husbands, come to lay before Jupiter a complaint against Venus, who inspired their wives with a great deal too much ardor. The chorus which they sang in a simple and doleful manner was now and again interrupted by the most significant pauses, and amused the audience immensely. 
a whisper went round the house. The cuckold's chorus, the cuckold's chorus. The name stuck to it, and it was encored. The get-up of the singers was very comic. Their faces were in accordance with the part they played. There was one especially, a stout fellow with a face as round as a moon. Vulcan, however, appeared on the scene in a state of furious indignation, seeking his wife, who had disappeared from home three days before. The chorus struck up again, imploring Vulcan, the god of cuckolds, to help them. The part of Vulcan was played by Fontan, a comic actor gifted with a talent as spicy as it was original, who waddled about in the most ludicrous manner imaginable, in the costume of a village blacksmith, with a flaring red wig on his head and his arms bare and tattooed all over with hearts pierced by arrows. A woman's voice exclaimed aloud, Oh, isn't he ugly? And everyone laughed as they applauded. The next scene seemed interminable. Would Jupiter never get all the gods together that he might submit to them the deceived husband's petition? And still no Nana. Did they mean to keep back Nana until the curtain fell? This long suspense ended by irritating the spectators, and they recommenced their murmurs. It's going from bad to worse, said Mignon, delighted to Steiner. A regular fiasco. See if it isn't. At this moment the clouds parted at the back of the stage, and Venus appeared. Nana, very tall and very plump for her eighteen years, in the white tunic of a goddess, and with her beautiful golden hair floating over her shoulders, walked towards the footlights with a calm self-possession, smiling at the crowd before her. Her lips parted, and she commenced her great song. When Venus takes an evening stroll. At the second line people exchanged glances of wonder. Was this a jest on the part of Bartonave or a wager? Never had so false a voice and so poor a method been heard. The manager had spoken truly when he said that she had no more voice than a squirt. Nor did she know how to stand or move on the stage. She threw her arms forward and wriggled her body about in a manner that was considered scarcely proper and very ungraceful. The pit was beginning to murmur. In fact, a few hisses were heard when suddenly from the orchestra stalls a voice, resembling that of a young cock molting, exclaimed aloud in a tone of intense conviction, She is stunning! The whole house looked to see who had uttered these words. It was the cherub, the youngster fresh from college, his lovely eyes strained wide open, his childish face all aglow with admiration of Nana. When he saw everyone looking at him, he turned scarlet with shame at having unintentionally spoken so loud. Degonet, who sat next him, looked at him with a smile, and the audience laughed aloud and thought no more of hissing, while the young gentleman with white kid gloves, also carried away by Nana's curves, applauded with vehemence. "'So she is!' they cried. "'Bravo!' Nana, seeing everyone laughing, laughed also, and this redoubled the gaiety. She was funny all the same, this beautiful girl, and as she laughed, a love of a dimple appeared on her chin. She waited, not in the least embarrassed, but on the contrary quite at her ease and thoroughly at home with the audience, looking as though she herself were saying with a wink of her eye that she didn't possess a half-porth of talent, but it didn't matter. She had something better than that. And after making a sign to the conductor which meant, Off you go, old boy, she commenced her second verse, at midnight, Venus passes by. It was still the same grating voice, but this time it tickled the hearers in the right place, and succeeded now and again in eliciting an approving murmur. Nana's smile was still on her red lips and shone in her large light blue eyes. 
At certain lines, which were a trifle broad in meaning, her pink nostrils dilated and the color rose to her cheeks. She continued to wriggle her body about, not knowing what else to do. But it was no longer considered unbecoming. On the contrary, every opera glass was turned upon her. As she finished the verse, her voice failed her entirely, and she saw that she could not go on. Without being in the least disturbed, she jerked her hip in a manner which indicated its plumpness beneath her scanty tunic, and with her body bent forward displaying her bare breast, she extended her arms. Applause burst forth from all parts of the house. She at once turned round, showing as she retired to the back of the stage the nape of a neck, the red hair on which looked like the fleece of an animal, and the applause became deafening. The end of the act elicited less enthusiasm. Vulcan wished to slap his wife's face. The gods took counsel and decided that they had best investigate matters on the earth before deciding in favor of the deceived husbands. Diana, overhearing some tender passages between Venus and Mars, swore that she would not once let them out of her sight during the journey. There was also a scene in which Cupid, acted by a little girl of twelve, answered to every question, Yes, mamma. No, mamma in tearful tones and with her fingers in her nose. Then Jupiter, with all the severity of an angry master, shut Cupid in a dark closet, and bade him conjugate twenty times the verb to love. The finale, a chorus very brilliantly rendered, met with more success. But after the curtain had fallen, the claque in vain tried to obtain an encore. Everybody rose and moved towards the doors. As the audience pushed their way through the rows of seats, they exchanged their impressions, one phrase was constantly heard. It is simply idiotic. A critic observed that the piece wanted a great deal of cutting down. But the piece, after all, mattered little. Nana was the chief topic of conversation. Faucherie and La Faloise, who were among the first to leave their seats, met Steiner and Mignot in the passage leading to the stalls. The atmosphere was stifling in this hole, which was low and narrow like some gallery in a mine, and was lighted here and there by flaring gas jets. They stood for a moment at the foot of the staircase on the right, protected by the railing. The spectators from the upper part of the house tramped down with a great noise of heavy shoes, the procession of men in evening dress seemed as though it would never cease, and a box-opener endeavored to prevent a chair on which she had piled coats and shawls from being swept away by the crowd. End of chapter 1, part 1